welcome to episode 33 of Game Dev with a Shot of Jameson. My name is Jameson Doral, and I'm a game designer with 20 years of experience that likes to help people learn more about video game development. Today we have another game design deep dive episode. I'm joined by Will Fitzgerald, game designer at Electronic Arts, to talk about the game design process. We cover where to start and what's important to consider when you're doing that next game design whether it's a solo team, a small team, or even up to AAA team sizes. Don't forget you can join the conversation live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern over at twitch.tv forward slash Jameson Doral. There's a link in the show notes if you want to come get your questions answered live next time. But for now, let's get this episode started. All right, buddy, you ready to get started? Yes, sir. All right, so we're going to talk about the game design process today. And that, that can mean a lot of different things, right? And as I was thinking through this, I, f- I feel like there's a few different angles we could approach because we talk a lot about uh, side projects, personal things for people to do to improve their portfolios. I think one of the things I want us to make sure we touch on is like, where do you start? You know, like if, if you're like, I want to do a new project, what's my plan for that? And how do I go through that? And then also maybe touch on something like, a small team project, right? Something where, you know, a group of five to 20 people and I'm responsible for something. We can talk about different levels of responsibility there and kind of what that design process looks like. And then also something similar to what we did at Volition, which is huge design, many elements to that. Where do you start? How do you go? How do we break that into smaller components that people own? How's that sound to you? Yeah, let's do it. Do you have any other, any other kind of, uh, framing thoughts um, um, in addition to that? If you wanted to take the two dimensions you've laid out and, and throw a third dimension of depth in there, I suppose you could, uh, in each of those cases, talk about pre-production versus production versus post-production live service yes. um, process for design. Because like it's going to be very different. That is very true. I like that. All right. So why don't we start with, and I know this is something that you're passionate about. Let's talk about like the side project, the passion project, that's probably just you, maybe maybe a couple of people helping out. Where do you start with something like that? I know where I start, and I'll obviously talk about that as well, but I'm curious kind of where, what gets you excited about something like that, and where do you begin? Um, hmm. So usually for me, it's either I just experienced a particular thing that I now want to go replicate hmm. to better understand and appreciate and possibly emulate later. Um... Or I just have this kind of YOLO idea that I want to bring to life. Um, the, the former is pretty easy. I'll go into a relevant um, modding tool usually from a game like game that's the competitor of that concept or whatever. And a lot of the um, tools are already laid out for me and uh, scripts and all that. So I can move pretty quick versus if it's something that I'm just kind of coming up with blue sky style. I'll uh, usually go to a visual mock phase almost immediately uh, whether I can get to a whiteboard or a document. I'll start writing out some really uh, simple high concept thoughts and then immediately start drawing it all out. And so I, I think yeah. the, the major difference there is that one is essentially already designed, right? Like you, right. you have the blueprint, you're recreating or, you know, creating that blueprint, probably a little different than what it was, but you already have kind of the, the vision, right? right? So in the case of something separate from that, where it's like, hey, I'm just going to go make a thing, right? Where, like, what is the, that linchpin for you? Like what, 
what one what gets you started on that and two where do you go first like what's the first thing to kind of nail down So, I guess so. I, I stumble because it depends on the type of like the subset of game design. It versus like if it's gameplay or if I'm trying to emulate some sort of system or if mm -hmm. I'm trying to just lay out some level. So, um, there's always layers to this stuff. There sure is, uh, and that's that's why you know this is all great conversation, right? Because it's it's not everybody's like, well, we'll just start a design, right? What does that mean, right? Like, there's so many different avenues for that, and so make sure we kind of talk about the different you know, avenues that we would take. Yeah. Um, right. So I don't know. I don't know. Ask me the question again. I'll give you something specific. Well, I was thinking like if, if you've got this, let's, let's, let's think about it this way. Let's think, think of you as a student, you're going through school, you, you have wow. some skill, right? Like you're, you're able to, to prototype something and build it. Right. Let's say that's oh the scenario okay. and you have this idea for, you know, some kind of a, you know, small one person game that you can make and put on the iOS store. Right. Ooh, sure. Okay. So what's the first thing that, that you feel like you need to nail down? Imagine it's just you, right. But you still need something. You should have something that leads your development, right? Some kind of design document that is yeah, the thing okay. that you make decisions <laughs> against. Right. So what do you nail down first? Yeah. So for me, and there's a lot of like valid answers here, but for me, I tend to lean immediately back to competitive analyses. So mm -hmm. if I was really in love with a, a feature or even a genre, I'd probably make a spreadsheet that tracks a bunch of high-level data about that genre. And then I would track uh, 20 to 50 games uh, that's relevant, filling out each of those uh, little questions or data bits I'm trying to collect. And then from seeing that view, from being able to sit back and look at a spreadsheet that covers like Gosh, I don't know. If let's say if in your situation or your scenario with iOS stuff and all, I'm making a platform. I'm gonna make a, a mobile 2D platformer. Okay. That's like there's a lot of those, right? So um I'm gonna go find again probably the, the most twenty to fifty relatively recent, relatively higher quality um ones that I can find and immediately uh start recording particular information. Uh basic stuff from, you know, like uh when did it come out, uh, how many players is it? We already said single player. Um, are they, is it free to play or is it a upfront cost because that affects things? Cause maybe I need to think about, uh, microtransactions or not. Um, little things like that, but I'll eventually get, you know, into the gameplay side of my spreadsheet and I'll mm -hmm. start asking like, okay, well, uh, this is a weird one for platformers, but how many pixels do I move over what time frame? Mm -hmm. Like, and that's kind of a more advanced question to ask oneself this early on. But if, if I'm inspired to make a 2d platformer, I'm, probably inspired by the gameplay because right. that's like all it is that well gameplay and level design and how they work together by all means so one or both of those things have motivated me to get here so i'm going to hone in research sections on the gameplay and the level design respectively and i'm going to um try to record measurable data as much as i can like yes no binary uh questions work for competitive analyses just fine but um the things that really make certain 2d platformers shine in the same example you look at something like Celeste and you, you got to ask yourself, how much did they really think about distance traveled with any given action? Mm -hmm. um, because that game is like the most comfortable 2D platformer character controller I've, I've ever touched in the genre. Um, so anyway, I, it just makes me think personally, you know, how long do they spend on that character controller? What are yeah. all the things they probably asked themselves to figure that out? And how can I replicate that and reverse engineer that? And, 
further understand that, not only about Celeste, if that's on my spreadsheet, but all of the other relevant competition I'm looking at. And then the you know, same things with levels, right? You just, you start asking yourself all these measurable questions to figure out pacing. Measurability here could be, how long does it take uh, me to get through a particular level on average? Um, how many times did I have to jump in that level? How many times did I have to do other particular activities in that level? Um, th th again, there's just a ton of things you can break down and measure. Yeah. Once you do that over a score or more of games, uh, you can really uh, find trends, find patterns, and pretty quickly, like that, that's probably, I don't know, four or five hours of effort, you could probably knock one of those out. Uh, if you're already familiar with the genre and the uh, deployment and all that. And yeah, no, that's that's going to save you countless hours of getting things wrong. You're still going to get things wrong. Right. <laughs> I feel like you're much closer to where you should be than um, not doing something like that. So I tend to always do that first because I guarantee the other 20 to 50 to even more game design minds that created all the games I'm researching collectively they absolutely know leaps and bounds more than me on the thing i'm researching that's a good point i should logically start with their efforts and try to build upon them yeah it's funny i, I do the same thing but I, I do it a little bit later it's like where i like to start is more of a i want to at least have in my head an idea of like what my three main mechanics are so because uh one I want to know what, what game I'm making, why it's unique and how it fits together. Right. So I'll do a bit of, you know, let me, you know, is this game, let, let's imagine this thing has like, you know, hook shot mechanic and, you know, like what, whatever the, the major kind of, of hooks are for the thing that I'm making. Uh, right. And I want to then, that, that would help me narrow down what I'm looking at. Right. But then also whenever you kind of narrow in on those specifics early one, you can focus in on trying to make sure they're fun right? And, and two, that they actually work together uh, and all of those kind of things. Like you can make something in a, you know, in a little vacuum and make sure that it's fun before you go wide at all, or, you know, spend any time, you know, building out something using this, this set of mechanics before you, you find out that it's, it's worthwhile, right? Um, sure. I, I understand why you do competitive analysis first. And usually it's, it's also very early for me. Um, but I just want to like, for me, it was a little bit more of like, I want to know that what I'm thinking about makes sense to me before, before, you know, I go too far with it. Sure. Totally. I mean, I, I think philosophically part of what you just said, I do, I just kind of do it partially subconsciously, partially just on the way of doing yeah. the whole competitive analysis. So, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So, so then let's imagine you, you've got your competitive analysis you've used that to kind of be like, okay, here's a common trend in the way that these mechanics are being built, the kind of things that make sense for iOS that you like, you're right. They've solved a lot of the problems, right? Or at least have identified them. You can play their game and be like, oh, they right. should do this differently, do it better, whatever that stuff is. And you're starting to wrap your head around what this is going to be. What is your, like, what's the first thing you write up? What's the first thing, or do you, right? Because like there's, there's different, you know, there's different ideas about this. Like if you're a solo person, do you really need a design doc? I would always argue of some sort. Yes. But, uh, what does that look like for you on, on a, like a tiny project like that? Yeah. So it is important to put stakes in the ground to keep yourself uh, focused, like you're suggesting. And I probably have a Google doc. That's a one sheet mm -hmm. where I identify real high level stop stuff. Like what, when, where, how, how, why all that. I'm just thinking like, you know, what can, what can the user do? Why can they do it? How can they do it from input, et cetera? Um, when and where, what are the rules? What are the constraints? 
Um, ideally, I already have good ideas as to why they're motivated to do all that to begin with. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I necessarily write that out at this stage. Maybe I would. <clears throat> but I, I kind of answer that, right? And from there, uh, whatever's motivating me, I tend to find an image of it and put it in that one sheet. Hmm. That's, that's another just kind of me thing. But let's say, um, same example, uh, iOS, 2D platformer kind of thing. Uh, you know, I just, the, the the one I played triggered this whole, this whole behavior I'm now doing. The, the, right. the thing I played last did it. Therefore, I'd probably have a picture of its logo or I'd be listening to its music on Spotify or something. Or oh, interesting. Something like that to keep me motivated, keep me in that, that, that same groove that uh, I recently or moment, moments ago discovered. Um, but yeah, most of my design efforts, uh, if I'm documenting stuff, are uh, spreadsheets uh, when, when I can do it my way. Yeah. That is almost one... everything I'm trying to design is is more systems driven. It's not really right. like fluffy, wordy, paragraphy. Yeah. So, all right. So, two things. One, you that's a fundamental difference between us, right? Like you go to spreadsheets first. I go to lists first, right? Where, so for me, yeah. a, a basic design doc is usually starts off with a list of bullet points of ideas that I've had about this that I want to make sure I remember. Right? It's not organized yet. It's just like. Oh yeah, I thought about this thing for it. Or I want to make sure I don't do this. Uh, I want to make sure the character can do this. Like the it's it's literally a list. If someone read it, it would make no sense to them at first because it's it's just a thing of ideas. And the first thing that I usually go to is a mind map of some kind because that allows me to drag things around, create topics, realize I need a new topic, create it on the fly, move over some bullet points to that. Um, so that's kind of, because my brain is always you know all over the place in the beginning, which is why I need documents to help make sure that I create a proper flow and keep organized with things. Uh, but For but sure. the other part of that is I love writing docs, but I'm also a very concise and to the point person. I've never been like a, a fluffy word person at all. My well, I tend to be a, what is the least amount of words I can use to make sure you understand what I'm trying to say? That's right. Very, very to the point. Uh, and I think that's important. Like nobody wants to read the backstory about this character at this point in the game development, right? Like nobody cares like, right. <laughs> unless it's just like for a broad theming type thing. So people understand the vibe of where it takes place. You can probably do that in a paragraph and then move on. And then later on, you can delve into that a little further. It's like the whole, no, the whole, like, let me write out this Bible about a game that I haven't done any work on yet is never going <laughs> to, never going to help anyone. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating how common that pro- that was taught and probably still is in some ways. Yep. It's interesting. Because, yeah, especially in the situation we're talking about now where it's all about uh, getting it done. Like, it's just me and it's uh, a pretty small scope and all that. Um, I-, I want to get into implementation as fast as possible. So I'm taking yes. the critical path steps to get there. Yeah. So I'm also someone who probably does something... I, I jump into uh, prototyping and feeling out a space digitally way sooner than most people probably do, or at least yeah. than, especially than a lot of traditional designers, because I think in engine, I think in 3D space. So if I'm, I'll do like a quick draw map of something of an area, but I've really got to get in there and build it. Like I need to see it from the perspective. I need to see what it's going to feel like to traverse that space over X time. And that's, it's a very feel thing for me. I go, I work with my gut with a lot of stuff like that, which is not generally probably something like you would, would do because you're much more system oriented and precise and, you know, that kind of thing. But I'm curious, like it, it, with your building, like what's your kind of method for that? Yeah. So, um, 
I seek to avoid reinventing the wheel every chance I can. Mm. So I'm usually harvesting uh, scripts and other tech that exist in, in whatever the context is. Like if I'm if I'm in a modding tool, I'm certainly just trying to stand my idea up off of what pre-exists as much as I can. Um, and since a lot of modding tools these days are, uh, you know, object-oriented and stuff, it's it's pretty standard architecture, no matter the language, no matter the tool, once you get your head wrapped around it. So, I mean, that, really, that's my answer. I just, I get in there and uh, hack everything together as quick as I can. I mean, they are technical hacks across the yeah. board. And once everything's hacked, then maybe I go back and start cleaning things up if I have a reason to. But often, if I'm just trying to prototype an idea and prove a concept, I'm not trying to equally prototype the best way to architect that concept oh lord no trying to get it in my hands playable <laughs> yeah so a lot of a lot of hard coding ugly bits and like i said reuse of things that were possibly not meant to be used in the way i'm using them many times yep <laughs> it, yeah. there was this one time when i was working on the simpsons game where we had to build this giant uh drill and like a drill facing down with blades that you could run up the side of, you know, like they're run, run on top of to essentially climb the drill bits. Uh, it was yep. like a humongous thing. And so I'd built this prototype, you know, just like modeled out this thing and we didn't have a tool available or function that would allow us to like rotate it, you know, just the way that I needed to. And I was full on prototype. I had nobody on the coding side that could help me. So what I did was I reused the door so I like made this door so it would like slowly turn and then like figured out a way to like make it work that way. And, and it was so funny Love too, it. because programmers came by and looked at it and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm <laughs> just trying to figure this thing out. Like, like it doesn't work that way. I like, I know I get it. It's not meant to be this way, but it gets the idea across. <laughs> That's right. Getting the idea across is, is possibly the most challenging part of game design. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Like I think most of the, um, yeah, most I I wouldn't say conflict, but the most a lot of the inefficiencies that I've experienced in my career come from people not understanding what the designer's trying to convey, which is a, a two way street. Yeah, um, the designer's got to continue to improve uh, all the relevant communication skills, process, organization, all that. But the the other disciplines or other designers or whoever the other side may be has to also learn how to listen better and how to uh you know see see other visions besides their own and all that stuff. Yeah. That is a really tough one. And that's why I think my ability to communicate with people was something that I've really focused on developing throughout the time because it was hard to know if someone really understood what you were talking about. And if you, you go far enough down the road where you have this one vision and they have another and you're working in parallel, and then it doesn't come together. Uh, you, you can't allow that to go too far, right? Like you've got to make sure that you're constantly checking in, making sure things are moving in the right direction and that the thing that you're building, like there's a lot of times, especially because a lot of programmers, at least that I worked with over time, tend to be very, like they'll lock in on a thought and a perception and then they'll just keep going in that direction, right? And because right. they're like, this is the plan, this is the thing I build, let me build the thing, right? So if you're not clear enough up front before they start to build it, that can cause a lot of problems. But yeah, uh, time is, oh yeah, definitely over-communicate. That is true. Yeah, over-communicate if, if, if at all possible. That is for sure. So when we get back to this thing you're building, you've, you know, you're making this little game. You've now started to, to hack some things together, proving out your proof of concept. 
when you are by yourself, how do you know when you you're heading in the right direction? How do you know that the thing you're building is, is meeting the mark that you have in mind and that it's actually going to be something worthwhile in pursuing? Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess in my head, I have a bit of a grading system. Um, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm generally motivated by other experiences I've recently had to be in the situation I'm in right now in this example. So I, I know what good looks like. In fact, I probably know what AAA high quality looks like more often than not from um, this. So um, not to oversimplify it, but that's my, that's my bar right there. Like I've, I've said forever, if someone wants to work as a game designer in AAA and the quality on their portfolio and stuff, isn't triple a like that's not the end of the world there's a lot of other things I, I consider and all but like i need you to do the job at that quality yeah if you're not showing that you know so uh, that's just relevant to this because right like that's the quality bar if i'm prototyping something now there are times going back to the grading system i hinted at it maybe i've already told myself you know what it's going to be way too much effort for whatever reason to hit triple a quality on that particular prototype that particular mod idea so i i'll settle i'll settle for less at times it just it depends on the goal of uh, it depends on exactly why I'm doing this. If I'm doing this to literally make a portfolio piece, yeah, it's going to be the highest quality I can get it. Yeah. If I'm doing this because I'm just having a drink one evening and having a good time playing in a tool set, just kind of doing this all for myself, then it doesn't really matter where I land. Um, and there's lots of other motivators too. So it truly just depends. Motivators to find the goals, the goals to find the quality effort. So. How do you, this is a kind of a general question, but I think it's an important one. How do you know when to stop pursuing a feature? Like that it's not fitting the vision. It's not coming up the way that you hoped. And, and how do you convince yourself to, to kill something that you've been passionate about? Yeah, I think um, game design, especially larger game design, <clears throat> when you have teams of people and lots of money on the line and stuff, um, it comes down to, I mean, pillars, stakes in the ground, but particular tenets that you and creative leadership have agreed to always aim at yeah. and be held accountable by. And so for me, it's usually as, as straightforward, not, not simple, but as straightforward as looking at those and asking yourself, okay, if you have to be as objective as possible, prioritize everything in development right now, prioritize every feature happening right now, whatever the case may be, and um, really take a hard look at what is at the bottom of that list, what can be on the chopping block. Um, that tends to be the most responsible way I've handled it. Uh, sometimes, though, you might be in a situation where that's not the case, and for some reason outside of your control, you're told to cut something. Mm. And uh, that's, yeah, that's got to be managed very differently because now you're probably more greatly affecting culture and general, like, sentiment of your teammates with whatever mm -hmm. the situation may be people just worked really hard on the thing that's being cut that never feels great um that gets into more managerial stuff too uh, so it, it, it comes down to the the how more than the what um if that's all handled well or not yeah yeah one one of the things that's always super frustrating is being told you need to change the change or remove something that that you feel good about right because of time or budget or whatever uh those are always difficult conversations for multiple reasons right have you have you been faced yeah. with that quite yet like it yes. yeah yes that, I mean, it sucks i mean yeah a few times it yeah. does suck because sometimes the majority might be with you yeah and it's someone powerful in the minority that's doing the thing regardless of who's right or wrong that just always feels weird yeah 
because it, it kind of creates this cultural like fence between uh, the people in leadership that might yep. be asking for one thing and the developers in the trenches that believe in another. So that's when you start to say they, right? They yeah. want this. <laughs> that's right because we should all be one team, right? Like, like seriously, and we should all be reinforcing uh, a cohesive, clear vision, regardless of disagreements on some details inside of that. So yeah, no, it's it's just a it's a human thing ultimately. It's not even a design problem as much as just a human problem. Yeah, um, having a lot of mature and highly talented team members are probably the best way to mitigate that, I guess. Yeah. But it's going to happen, and yeah, it's happened. It's happened quite a few times in my career, especially when you work on uh, free-to-play live service games that have a lot of um, like a lot of development. You know, like Agents of Mayhem stopped development at a particular date. Right. Where, like the Madden Mobile franchise never stops development. Like never stops That's, development. So, that is so crazy to me. I have not experienced a live service game, service game yet, and I the the thing that I love most about games is that cycle, right? That that pre-production phase where you you know it's a little lighter, and then you move into production where things are speeding up, and and now we're closing it in post-production and. And then it starts over, right? And then the, you get that breather again, and you get to move on to something else where it feels like live service is much more of a like, while you still have those phases, it feels like you don't ever really stop, right? Like you, yeah, yeah, you coexist among those phases. Right, where, right. Wherein non, like, like the former you said, you know, you have pre-production, you have production, you might have some post-production patches, you might be working on new DLC content or something, whatever. Yeah, in live service, it's uh, you're in all three simultaneously all the time man so so for a game let's let's talk about how like madden is structured because it's you you don't do you do a new update every like is it a new game each year or is it an update to the current one how does that so work it, it kind of depends on the year okay we have done both in my time here. okay um but generally whether you have to download a new app or it's just a huge update to the app you had from the last season right um i'd say we probably and i mean very unofficially here, right? I'd ballpark. We probably have maybe six major releases a uh, calendar year mm -hmm. and try to get the majority of those during the NFL season. Okay. Which makes sense, right? So, um, and then between that, we have content updates all the time, 24 right. 365. Content always updates in our game. But in terms of feature sets that require you to download an updated client, it's a handful of times a year. Yeah. And so for you, instead of thinking about it being a whole project, what you focus that that pre-production, production, post-production post time on on a release, right? So that's right. I'm working in multiple releases simultaneously man. for about half of the year, and then the other half of the year, I'm I'm pretty laser focused on launching the next NFL season, the big one. Okay, that's right. The big man. One. That's so you're kind of polishing up one probably in production on another and in pre-pro in another one, right? Or something, you know, right, something because, along those lines, right? Right, because the, the, the treadmill's got to keep going, but from the content side and the, like, feature engineering, all the other discipline side. So, yeah, when we get close to, like, launching, you know, the next NFL season, whenever that date ends up being, um, yes, I'm already in pre-production on designs for the, the second release. Right. And, you know, pretty soon after that, the third release, because, again, those happen faster during the NFL season, so... Yeah, it's a it's a very intense time for all involved. That sounds exhausting. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's I mean, I've I've adored doing it. It's um, it's very different. So yeah, yeah from the perspective I'm not doing it before, I'm sure it does seem exhausting. But now that I've had the 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 saw the time doing it for the past few years, I feel I don't know. I feel great about it. 
Like, like I, it's really, it really teaches you how to context switch, right? And I guess that's kind of obvious here, but context switching is a skill. It is a super yes. skill. Yep. And I wish I knew how to teach myself or others how to do it better. But just through all the experience of live service life, um, context switching becomes a legitimate skill that if you take into, I imagine, a game that isn't as fast as, say, Madden Mobile's development, um, you're probably going to do really well. Yeah. Like, like you're probably going to outperform whatever the current pace is of whatever that team is. And uh, yeah, that, that that's, yeah, it's very different. So I wonder, I, th- I feel like people tend to have a phase of development that they either excel in or don't excel so much in. And, you know, so a lot of times what we do with development teams is we've got the guys who are the content creators, right? Like they, they don't care about being early in production and figuring out what something is. Instead, they just want to like build what you give them. And levels, missions, all yeah. the designers, yeah. And so I wonder, so there, there's been times in my career where we've where we've made sure that person does that on project to project, right? Like we bring them in, and we finish up the, the production, post-production on something, and instead of moving them into pre-pro on something, we'd move them into production on something else, right? So they can con- continue sure. to use that skill. In this environment, what you're talking about requires you to be at least proficient in all the phases all the time. Right. right. So what happens if you aren't, or, you know, like uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this, like, cause I've definitely known people yeah. that are not as useful in various phases and they know it. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I think <clears throat> speaking for myself, you know, I, well, with the Madden mobile team, I, uh, I'd say my weakest of the three for us is post-production for okay. example. So just, straight up there has to be other designers that are handling post-production as their main focus because i am not going to be as good at them as them at that um where my greatest strengths for this team probably lies in pre-production so every time pre-production begins i tend to be uh among the first to roll into it Mm. and then i enter production and i sit there for however long and then i roll back into pre-production almost always gotcha let somebody else finish it yeah so even i don't necessarily have like tangible responsibility across all three phases in the same given day in the same year i do for sure but in the right. same day it's usually the first two stages yeah so then that becomes kind of you know something about how much i like that cycle it kind of ends up being the same way just in different spurts right like you probably get that right. that cycle more often and that ability to to kind of feel like you're closing something else out and move on to something else that's that's nice Yes, it is. And that is a, an actual benefit, a huge benefit about live service game design, I think, is this um, very regular, tangible deployment. Um, I mean, there's, you know, variables in that. But if I am regularly launching new tangible content or whatever I'm doing that both the users and I get to play in the live product, that's an incredible feeling, an incredible motivator. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you get you blood, sweat and tears along the way, but every time you ship it out the door, it's uh yeah, I mean you closed. You did what most people can't do. Yeah. And you do it regularly. And uh God, some of the talented people on this team do like I said, do it daily. A lot of mobile games do like, you know, two, three week event things, and we really are on top of it, especially during the NFL season. It's the content team's very impressive. That's that's fascinating to me. And and actually kind of, you know, with the kind of flow we're talking about you're on a much tighter schedule, right? And you're on something oh, yes. that is live, right. 
Right, it's real world. <laughs> that's right. So how how do you like you've got to quickly decide when when a feature that's planned is going to work or not, right? So like do you get to the point where you're like we had this idea, we've we've gone through whatever this truncated pre-production and early production idea is for something and we decided it's or we we don't think it's going to work as well as we hoped. Do you get out of pre-production with something like that? Are you fully commit? You know, like how how does that flow generally work? Yeah. So, <clears throat> or what can you talk about? Right. Like right, it, right, right. So I could I could see a hypothetical where I've designed some stuff and went through some approvals. Um, engineers built those designs, um, tools, gameplay, uh, other systems, whatever it may be, and. Basically, when the engineer is done, it might come back to me in this example. And at that point, you know, I can continue to build test content for the feature. I can continue to play with uh, the feature, everything that basically anything a designer would generally uh, control with it. If there's something that doesn't feel right, I have the opportunity to turn back around to the engineer and say, hey, uh, let's go through the particular process to maybe mm -hmm. uh, iterate on it in this way and eventually try to get it to where um, I'm wanting it to be. And yeah, sometimes uh, that is the stage where things would or would not get cut per se. Okay. Like, like we've already built it. We, like we generally always built it, build it, and then it's up to us to decide uh, was design right or wrong about this. I mean, like almost always we're going to move forward with it and see how it how it generally does. Uh, there's usually a lot of research, uh, UXR efforts, uh, a lot of data, product management, yada yada. There's a lot that goes into our decisions, so it's not like they're YOLO. Um, so generally, like generally it makes sense, generally it works out, but yeah, once in a while, um, that's where we cut is once it's in a designer's hands and we're realizing through some internal play testing or just designer play testing that we, uh, we're not right about the thing. Well, you've probably also got an opportunity to shelve it too, right? Like the, oh yeah, yeah. It's we not can, like throw away for right, sure. We right. can, we can shelve it. We can iterate on it later when it sense to do so yeah um often designers will find a way to use it that it was not meant to be used which <laughs> engineers love that right and um because obviously there's use cases the engineers are accounting for based on the design and then the design's like ah oh, we have these other use cases we didn't tell you about lol and we have to figure all that out together um so again i know they love that but uh, yeah it's through that 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 agility and that that uh yeah iteration it's funny it too if if a designer is not utilizing tech the way it's not meant to be i would argue they're not designing hard enough like like we should oh, yeah that's and it's, it's funny though because it's like they don't want that right they want that spec up front that has yeah, every that single detail and we're like you know what we had this idea we got so far and then actually you know we might yeah. do with this with it so it's it's funny how how those can be and probably should be at least at a foundational level diametrically opposed. Yeah, we got to find right. a way to to get them in sync better at all times. That's the fun. It, it, it is the fun. <laughs> it's something that really helps with this particular problem. I've learned through various other process around it. Um, engineers that have like at least like a junior level design sense, or and or designers that at least have a like junior level software engineering mm -hmm. ability, like, like any of that, uh, any of that crossover makes all this go so much, so much better. Sure does. There, there've been so many times where I've had conversations with engineers where we, we are speaking the same language because one or both of us understand enough about the other one's role and perspective and all that. Yep. I just, I, I can't stress that enough that being able to do that with other disciplines as a game designer. Yep. 
is so important. I've always believed that game designers and producers should have a junior level understanding of every discipline they work with. And if yep. they did, holy cow, would we be more efficient? And it, lots of other benefits, I think. Just even having intelligent conversations, like yeah. it makes a huge. And I always told people, you know, my my coming out of full sale in two thousand and one with mostly a programming degree, right? With with some design, right. but with my you know me still moving into design, I, I was able to have those conversations that, that a lot of people couldn't. And, and I know, and I, and I said it all the time, that gave me a huge leg up and it built respect, right? Like whenever you can talk intelligently to someone and then cause less rework on something they're doing, because you could oh, actually, yes. you know, send them in the right direction quickly. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's super good. Um, you know, and, and sentiments like that, I always heard as a student and I even heard like real early on, but, those things really sink in, or at least for me, they really sink in around after I had a couple of years, uh, you know, experience and all this. And I guess my point is there's layers to all these concepts. You think you understand something and then you just get mind blown when life hits you with something relevant to that concept. <laughs> Everything you just said, like, I think I, I understand very well now, but I'm, I equally know I'm going to get slapped many times in the future on these concepts as I continue to grow with them. Yeah. Well, and each person you're working with is different too, right? So for sure, that, that figuring out it, it it becomes a how do I work with this person on this thing, and you, you're doing that learning all the time, and it's it's tough, but it's it's a challenge, and it's in, in my opinion, it's a, an important part of the job, and it's something you need to figure out how to do well. Yeah, a lot of studios will straight up expect it based on what you are assigned to as well. Yep, that's true. Man, so when it, let's talk about a bigger project a little bit. So, I mean, I know you're on a bigger project now, but when I think about a game like, you know, we worked on Agents of Mayhem together, there, there could, there's hundreds of different design docs that, that are built for a project like this, yep. right? And from varying levels of, you know, pitch docs to, you know, the whole thing covering what missions are like to an individual mission design to the boss battle in the mission, right? Like it, it, it spiders into this enormous amount of things and the bigger the team, the less you're responsible for in general. Right. right. So what, what do you see, uh, what changes in your process when you are now the owner or, or maybe even just the implementer of a, of a feature or, you know, a part of the game, how does that change how you approach it? Mm. I mean, I guess, <clears throat> based on the perspective, the hat I'm wearing, the perspective I'm looking through, you know, yeah, I guess I'll think of something different. Like if I am implementing um, with the majority of my time, I'm much more aware of tools in that time period, right? So uh, mm. a lot of my design decisions and feedback and iteration attempts might actually move more toward improving tools and pipeline and even process more than changing the local level or mission or whatever the content design may be. Um, And so let, let's imagine, so you were working on agents for Agents of Mayhem, right? Correct. So let's talk about Braddock. Ah, I love Braddock. Right? Braddock's one of my favorites, yeah. So what were the parameters you were given when you were told to design on Braddock? Like what was the, what was already decided? Or if you remember, or at least even broadly, like, because this is where it always gets interesting is like, what what was given to you? What was the box you could work within? What was the creative freedom that you have? And then how do you work through that? 
Yeah, so <clears throat> first, I have to praise Ryan McCabe, who you've you know had on here before. Um, he was my lead at the time, lead designer, and he 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 gave me way more trust than I deserve, like way more control <laughs> over these designs than I. I mean, he saw something that I'm not sure I still see, but he he really trusted me on this stuff, and and it meant a great deal, and it let me, I mean, do a lot. So when when you mention constraints, that basically whatever I could get to work in the engine that didn't kill performance was fair game. Nice. And so that's um, a lot of freedom. It's a lot of freedom. <laughs> and, uh, let's see. So Braddock, right. I mean, I, one of the first things that came to mind when you mentioned her too, I, I remember uh, someone looking at me and being like, good luck, good luck making, uh, another Hollywood, but, but like different. Because, right. Right. Like at first, if you look at them objectively, like, gosh, they're both probably mid range, uh, military weapons, yada yada um so you have explosives you might have precision you got to just think about all this and so you know that was my challenge because hollywood was one of the agents that i spent uh, quite a bit of time on with this gameplay too and so for braddock i was like okay well well we had a really cool thing in agents design where we identified an agent by three parameters we okay. uh, thought about their lethality so how well they might do offensively we thought about their durability, which was, you know, how well they could survive, more or less. And we thought, and we kind of had like a catch-all specialist uh, corner of the triangle. And was this so, uh, was this vision kind of given from from Ryan as far as like here's how we should think about these? Yeah, okay. yeah, I, I think so. It, it pre-existed me for sure. Okay. Uh, it was like on the wall out there when you'd walk out of the yeah. room. And so, so the, the combat yeah. pillars, right, or the you know yeah. the agent pillars, essentially. Basically, right. Yeah. And so, fortunately, with that. We we had little little tacks with the pictures of all the agents' faces, and we'd, we'd stick them into that board, and you could kind of see, oh, well, Rama, and I do not remember these numbers anymore, but like, okay, uh, if we if we measure from one to ten on how lethal and how durable and how special each agent is, Rama might be um, a seven on lethality, um, a two on durability, and a five on specialist, whatever. Like that equals what fourteen. And so maybe you might say something like every agent must equal 14. Okay. And then from there, you're like, okay, well, how do we distribute? Well, how do we arbitrarily but creatively distribute this, this attempt to measure the effectiveness of an agent? And then from there, you would start tangibly figuring that out with, okay, well, what is their weapon? How does that weapon behave? We had one hell of a weapon component. It was dope. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, I could do a lot of stuff with very little effort. It, it truly was like there was some really strong gameplay support there. And so, you know, I, I whip together particular weapons um, and just see how they felt. Um, same with abilities, you know, we try to figure out, okay, well, you know, if Braddock might be this mid to semi long range kind of person, and that, that's where we want her most effective, then obviously her primary weapon needs to support that. Um, and let's say her special, her speciality rating was, was pretty high, which I, I truly don't remember if it was or not. I don't think it was, though. Um, then I would try to give her more crowd control or more just interesting utility, not just mm -hmm. raw damage. But Braddock does a lot of damage, as I recall. So she was she was ham. Um, her ultimate, you know, called in an airstrike. Yeah, if I'm remembering this right, and would just devastate the area. So you know, she was just all gas, no brakes, offense, lethality. And uh, now that yeah, it's coming back to me as I'm talking about it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, no, you're it's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it was cool because if you if you looked at that same triangle and you looked at the board, a lot of agents. Um, had nice identities and there was there was it was nice when you could visually see there was a couple inches of empty space between the agents because then you at least you, you began to think maybe i'm doing this right like maybe i'm not invading someone else's niche and i'm really trying to discover more 
niche opportunities within this triangle. So yeah, I remember Braddock being way up there on lethality and not much else. Whereas if you look at um, uh, Jewel was another one I spent a lot of time with. Um, love Jewel to death. Love that character. The uh, Blair and everyone else's narrative work on her was fantastic, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and but she's the, she's the pet character, right? I'm I'm dropping turrets on the mm -hmm. ground. And they do shit, and yeah. that is also dope. So, um, for her, you know, we gave her a close range shotgun. Looked at some other things. We're like, okay, we want her to be pretty high on special. So what did that mean? Well, that turned out to be more area control. And with area control, you ask yourself, like, well, is this more active versus passive? What's the shape of the AOE? I mean, you can always just assume circles from the origin point, but there's a lot of opportunity you have with actually how an AOE may uh, function right? Um, and where it uh, instantiates from and uh, duration and other effects that can happen. So I explored a lot of that and ended up um, prototyping a bunch of turrets that certainly didn't ship that had different like AOE effects or targeting effects or other weapons. I kind of took the behavior of almost every other agent's weapon and kind of tossed it into a turret just to see if any of them <laughs> felt really good as a low-hanging fruit because I could just reuse that script and yeah. you know like do more modular stuff there. Um, but yeah, I, I remember I ended up using one of the grenades. Um, she, one of her turrets I, I think was a, a pulsing, like a like an electric pulse kind of thing. Yeah. And I remember using the grenade that behave that way at the time using that same script and uh we used it i, I want I, mean, I don't know how it launched but at the time while i was there it was the same script for like we reused scripts on a lot of stuff and wrote it in such a way that they could be used all over the place you didn't copy and paste the scripts like, yeah. like you didn't do any of that you just had intelligent like state management and conditional checks early yeah. on in the scripts to know if when where how something should work and and that the volition really drilled that into me i'm, I'm tangenting now but the the concept of modularity like yep. you grow up with unity and unreal and stuff these days and you're exposed to uh component driven architecture whether you really understand what that means or not uh you, you get the basics either way you're like oh i make this component and if i attach it to that actor in unreal or something it now kind of sort of knows how to do the thing like you just you know plugged into the matrix or whatever yep. and that's neat like that's a really neat concept um, well, and then take that and make a child version. You know, you get the inheritance. Right. You inherit so the inheritance things you need, and then do whatever deal. you want. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's that was some of the true strengths of working with the volition tool set was I could just do that uh, to the extreme. But my imagination was was the only real constraint. Well, and again, performance. Um, so, so I'm curious. Uh, a lot of the things you're talking about are they? You're talking about a scenario where a lot of tools exist, as far as like. You know, you had these these things that you could pull from these weapon scripts and all this kind of stuff to make turrets, that kind of thing. And you had a lot of creative freedom to work within there. So you basically had a bunch of Legos that you could go in and do some cool shit with and see what work came together the right way with with whatever vision that you kind of came up with, which is fantastic. How much of that though was uh, something you just kind of came up with as far as like were were turrets a thing? that that you could utilize or were you like oh i think we should do a turret how do i make that happen and then i can throw this stuff on top of it yeah i think in this case and man i'm so sorry if i'm giving the wrong person so when i first got there it was in that summer and in the summer i guess volition always had a bunch of interns mm -hmm. and so the intern james who ended up uh kind Co of having Coatian? the same yeah yeah same position i had when i left um more or less he pretty sure he made the turrets maybe jordan made the turrets one of them made i didn't make the turrets the turrets were there is my gotcha. point so what i did is i kind of had like or maybe you know it could have been miller's side and they made a turret for an enemy or something there's no telling but 
took the turret and added a bunch of things to the turrets to figure out what felt good with the turrets. Gotcha. So, yeah. I'm just always curious because, you know, when we're talking about, you know, our process for designing something, what you're doing, I think, is the bulk of what we do as designers, right? Like we we see things, we think of how to repurpose them, we do things with them that they weren't intended to do. Right. Uh, like that's if if you're not doing that, like I mentioned before, you're you're not doing it right. Right. Like you want to reutilize <laughs> things. You want to like, you know, the stuff's there and it sparks creativity. And and yeah, even yeah. within that, the, it creates the boundary that we work within. If you don't have those boundaries, I, I would also argue you're not really designing. Right. So I'm just always fascinated to hear, like, what did you have to work with? And then what was you kind of taking that and and putting your spin on it into making it something new? You know? Yeah, I think. The, the be- strongest answer for Agents of Mayhem, I that about what was really just something novel that I really, that I got to mostly create from the ground up. Like some of the agents, again, like, like turrets, the turrets kind of pre-existed, so I didn't have to do that part. And there were some other pieces of agents I didn't have to do that pre-existed. But um, uh, Lazarus, Lazarus uh, being one of the DLCs with Safe mm-hmm. Word, um, Lazarus was my attempt to make a necromancer in that universe nice i really wanted to make a necromancer i had just played through i want to say dragon age origins for like the third time which is one of my favorite <laughs> games ever made it's and such so a good a character game there that has some necromantic uh options well i guess all mages technically do um kind of but um yeah so i just want to figure out what does that, does that make sense and what does it look like so it ended up being nanites right you you as lazarus manage these nanites and the concept for Lazarus, I'm pretty sure it came from writing. Like that was still Jason Blair and that yeah. team. But when, when I was able to start connecting the dots, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to make uh, these swarms of nanites that she slings onto enemies that have varying effects. And I want her to be limited. I, I think we landed on four. She can only have four different like nanite uh, shots out at a time or groups at a time. And so it was this, it was this tactical uh, gameplay style where you would choose which of the three types of nanites you want to send next and where do you want to send them? And you just, it was just a dance. You and the enemies, you were just doing it and you were trying to, you know, appropriately paper, rock, scissors with the enemies accordingly. And I, I thought that play style was so damn engaging. So I, I really got behind um, huh. putting a lot of extra time and effort into her. That's really different too, which is what a DLC character should be. Ideally. And that's what I was trying to do. I was yeah. trying to figure out like, you know, how can I really stay within the universe do something very different yeah and uh and the animators i worked with really all the agents i want to say that was devin fam um you know did a great job every animator i worked with there was killer because we agent designers sat in the same room as all the animators because gameplay and animation are very very close if you they sure are um yeah and a lot of those uh animators were full cell grads too yep man animation is I i think usually is one of the the things that ends up being a linchpin because most of what we want requires, you know, some kind of animation for it. And there's oh, usually boy. not enough of them, right? Like, so. Right, because you, you want to convey <laughs> the ability. You want to convey what your player character is doing as well as you can. Right. And we are humans, obviously. We animate a lot, obviously. So we, we have a very uh, easy understanding of what's believable not, not not necessarily what is realistic but what's believable yeah yeah you know, companies like disney uh nail that yeah um well, it's about a, the immersion factor yeah. right the second something doesn't look like it moves quite right it draws it pulls you out of that immersion that's right right yeah yeah so sure. it's it's definitely a big deal and there's obviously a lot of 
they're so good at cutting the right corners so you don't notice the things like they don't need yeah. full <laughs> movements of certain things right like they know where That's to cut right. those frames uh at least the good ones do but man yeah. like there's just they're so integral especially with something like characters and you know like this, it, they had to sit with you guys because what what you guys are doing with them was so important yeah yeah no i i think and yeah, the, the one of my favorite disciplines is animation, largely because I don't think I'd ever be amazing at it. Um, so I just appreciate the hell out of anyone's mind that is. Yeah. So I, one other thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but with competitive analysis, every time I look at Apex and I see Bangalore, I think, man, those guys had to have looked at Braddock. Like, Thank you. <laughs> I, dude, the second I saw Apex Legends in Turtle. So, you know, way back, um, <laughs> I immediately thought that I turned to people and, you know, I turned to my, to my coworkers and probably said something along those lines. And I, I, re I vaguely recall everybody's like, I don't know who the hell Braddock is. And I'm like, oh, oh, I hate you all. See, I hate that... all of you for not playing this game. Um, oh yeah. man. It's so good. But that, that's, that's how we work, right? Like it's, it, especially in a character based game. Like it, I, I totally see why that, and who knows if it actually happened. Right. But they are eerily I mean, similar. <laughs> me and another designer, well, everyone that put effort into Braddock and then whatever the effort leveling was over there, right? They, it's just funny for two completely different groups to such a similar uh, conclusion. Yeah. But maybe that means it's good game design. Maybe Braddock and Bangalore are fantastic character design. We're going to go with that. We're going to go with that because with that. I believe that's true. It's uh, funny because that, that's my main <laughs> in Apex. Every time I get back into Apex. Is it? Nice. Uh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> That's a game I, I've I've been aching to get back into, and I need to check out the new mode. Uh, yeah, is it out now? Is that, it's coming. Oh, I should know this. I, I'm not paying attention to. Apex I don't think it's out yet. Time. Yeah, I know we were just talking about it publicly. So yeah, yeah, I know I it's been. Well, I think so far they've said it's coming. But I think there was like a video coming soon to show a little bit more detail. I watched the the mm, announced okay. trailer a few days ago. So, but from the rumblings I'm hearing is it's more of like a. A, a Valorant type mode. I don't know what you can say, but there's like a Valorant type mode where it's, you know, you're buying weapons and it's, you know, your three party jumped in all that kind of thing. So I'm curious to see uh, how it lands. It fascinates me that you would say a Valorant mode when I'm sitting here thinking a counter-strike mode. Sure. Sure. Just, yeah. I, I, I know it's, it's all, it's like whatever, but yeah. you know, when I hear someone say Valorant of, of, of all the games of that genre, I'm like, that's interesting. I wonder what led someone to think of Valorant first instead of Counter-Strike or instead of uh, Rogue Company or instead of... Because uh, I, I have a Varsity Valorant team and I don't have either of those other two. Yeah, so. yeah okay. <laughs> but that's, that's a fair answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> where, where I just have uh, some years in Counter-Strike, so I default yeah. there. But yeah. Interesting. But yeah, that's. Uh, I'm curious to see what happens with that. So... Oh, and Bloodhound's my other favorite Apex legend. See, I always play Mirage and Wraith, so I'm, that's my style, though. Yeah, no, uh, Wraith, Wraith was someone I was really into earlier, too. Um, I, I, I dig both their styles, for sure. I just, Bloodhound, I, I dig the intel. I love yeah. knowing things. I, I should play Bloodhound, because I need that. Like, it's it's rough for me out there. So I <laughs> That's why I use it, because I'm like, I, I feel like I have more of an advantage with that information. Yeah. So, Which do it at the right time random yeah. side note i finally actually played some vermintide 2 i saw you and uh, i was playing with miller this weekend Resistant. yeah i saw you both playing man i yeah. almost messaged you guys and i was like they didn't invite me i'm not yeah. talking to 
<laughs> it, it's funny because he was like, hey, man, you want to like catch up and play a game? I'm like, sure, let's do it. And that's awesome. what we decided on. And it was awesome. Like, I didn't realize how good that game is. I know you've been telling me forever. For years. And the, the thing that I loved so much about it is their messaging. Like the outlining they do about where friend is and yeah, just but, like yeah, their UX is it's no joke. So good, it's really that game good. Is so fast, and they're conveying all that to you effective with with the chaos happening. Yeah, man, it's it's a marvel. The, the design, yeah, Fat Shark kills it with Vermintide too. Yeah, it, it's really good. And like I said we only played a couple hours. I think we played through three three maps. And like as I'm playing through, I'm looking at it, and I'm gonna tell you what I think is happening, and you can tell me if this is true. That you you revisit the same locations, but the type of enemies and scenarios change. And that's right. Anything that can spawn can yeah. change. And so like when you get there, like hit these three things and things will happen. Like I assume the next time I come there, that's not what the objective is gonna be. And objectives are the same. Oh, the objectives loot, are the same. Loot and enemy encounters are what change. Okay, cool. So that's and what I was kind of curious they have about. That, they have that Twitch uh integration that I've mentioned before. And oh, I, that's I would right. love I, I, one day I'll just sit down and do it too, but I think that'd be fun for you to try sometime. Yeah. And we could sit here and make stuff spawn and, you know, watch you die. We're going to do that. Funny, so, We're going to do it. Know. Now that I've played, it, play it was... If we did that, yeah. Yeah, we'll do that one night. That'd be fun. But it was it was a lot of fun. I, and I played with a controller, and it was really good. So I was surprised. So That's awesome. I, there's no way I could play that with a controller, but I understand. I, so that, I did that's it. That's the one game where I need to turn. Like, you need to turn... Fast. Dude, the con the basic <laughs> setup for the controller turns fast, okay, and it cool. and it didn't feel. And this was what I was afraid of, because I don't play first person games with a controller like ever. But my back was hurting that day, so I was like, I can't like sit up straight. So I was like, I need to lay back and just kind of chill. And it was great. Like I I, I was like, they That's did a really cool. good job. So give it a try and see what you think. You may not like it because you're so used to. Uh, yeah, KBM, I, I tried but... controller a few weeks ago, but all the UI changes too. Like it's it's actually a completely different user interface based on your input, and oh. that, that broke that broke my head. I was I was not able oh. to relearn all the UI. Yeah. So I well, back. I went in fresh, and it it felt great to me. So no, that's awesome. Uh, I don't doubt it. Like they are really really good at conveying information to users, and like um, Vaius was saying in the chat there, the vistas, the flow of the levels, like their level design, I think is among best in class in our industry. It is it's good. Worth looking at for any level designer. It's and very good. I mean, from pacing to flow to uh, attention to detail all over the place in so many ways. They they pay off the Warhammer IP, the end times in particular, uh, just insanely well. That's what made me a Warhammer fan. This particular series of games, Warhammer 1 and 2, made me get into the whole Warhammer universe. Yeah. And I don't regret it. It's among my favorites now. Oh, I love Warhammer. I, I've always been a fantasy fan. Uh, that, that Vermintide's 40K world, right? Or no? I don't know. Um, so it's all Warhammer. Verm Vermintide is Warhammer fantasy. Okay. Um, during the end times, which okay. is a particular time of gotcha. the Warhammer fantasy. Yeah, I, I played tabletop Warhammer when I was at EA. We played a lot. I, and I spent a lot of money on these metal figures. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what's up. But... Luckily, I was able to resell them all afterwards and made all my money back, which was interesting. But I love when that happens. Yeah, I love investing in something and then getting all your money back. Dude, which reminds me, have you looked at the Final Fantasy TCG prices on eBay? I sure have. I still keep up with that quite a bit. Those uh, Opus One cards are uh, very valuable now. Just saying, just throwing that out yep. there. Yep. No, I've um, I've I invested in some other booster boxes of the early Opus just to. 
prepare for that. Yeah, because they're like on 13 or something now. It's crazy. It's a lot. Yeah, it's it's somewhere north of 10 for sure. Yeah. Um, I stopped really playing at 8. Yeah, it's a good game. It's a really good game. I wish there was a digital format. To there should be. There really should be. Just, you know, most people don't have enough other people around them to play with. Yeah. Like if it wasn't for Magic the Gathering pushing Friday Night Magic and other particular things and all the sponsorships they did with so many, like, hole-in-the-wall board and card game shops and all that, like, yeah. So Magic figured it out, but it's that doesn't mean it's easy to replicate. So well, no one else has really figured it out yet. Magic tried several times on digital side and did not work, right? It took the actual arena full-on, you know, mode that they have now that, em that emulates and launches with paper for it to work. But. Yeah, yeah, Arena's definitely the best. Magic Online, I think, was pretty successful for what it was, though. Magic Online was the authority of that for a long time. And wasn't, some of the video games I enjoyed. Yeah, Magic Online did not suck. I mean, wasn't it, it, Magic it Online... UX, couldn't you but. turn in your digital cards for paper if you wanted to on that version? That sounds vaguely familiar, that, but I don't remember it. Yeah. Because that sounds like a terrible business decision. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, I've seen Warhammer do it, and I thought that was the coolest thing they could have ever done. I mean, whoever made that card blanking on the developer but um that that last warhammer card game that actually avaeus got me into um i remember as soon as we realized we could put all of the physical cards into the video game we just started scouring hundreds of those cards and scanning them with our phones <laughs> all day one afternoon um could you share cards and scan them in like no, yeah sure could. oh and, man yeah. that's and the I, dream I they even had a counter of how many times each card had been scanned, like that uh, particular instance of that card. Interesting. So I, I, I want to say that was a thing. And like, I was like the 98th person to scan particular cards and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's... <laughs> I really... As a game designer, if money's irrelevant, way to go. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. But I just don't know how you maintain a business model from that. That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Like, I, actually, I kind of want to talk about the design of that a little bit. Like... <laughs> Okay, so so if your design is you buy paper, well, it was buy paper and it turned it digital for free, right? That's what you're saying? Correct. Correct. So then it sounds like what they did not care about was the digital version of the game. That's right. Right? <clears throat> Which Especially they're like multiple ones. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, there's some fantastic different Warhammer video games, but yeah, obviously their bread and butter is analog. And so the... <sighs> Okay, so this is an, a kind of an interesting design choice because when we're when we're talking about things that are important to us, it I, I wonder why they had it at all. Like, what, did they give the were they given the the directive that you need to make this stuff work online? And so they're like, you know what, we're still going to focus on the paper version. We're just when it comes to the online, we'll make sure it functions. It's cool that people this it's cool that people can take their cards and put them online. But we don't really care about that. You know what I mean? Like it almost has it almost has to have that feel a little bit. No, I'd agree. I'd agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there could be some hypothesis of let's see, of if you can convert a certain amount of your spenders from the physical trading card game into a digital trading card game, that the hypothesis suggests they become a digital spender where previously they weren't, or I don't know that there had to be something that was backed up by, I don't know, some level of intelligence to make that decision. Well, how many it's times, how many times have you, I've, I've had this happen many times where we are full on in production on something and marketing or publisher says, Hey, we want you guys to do this now. 
right? It's oh, possible yeah. this was a super late addition, right? Yeah, yeah, that absolutely happens, especially if some sweet deal comes through with some sponsor or something that didn't previously exist. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's part of that's just part of live services, man, having to always react to that and and pre-order incentives. Yeah, I mean, all that <laughs> stuff, too. But, but I mean, usually usually it's justified. It makes sense. Like everyone is mutually benefiting from that situation despite it being um, breaking process or principle. And yeah. so, um, yeah, usually, I mean, it's always worked out more or less in the examples that I've experienced. And it just goes back to uh, whatever the game is and their live content team. If your live content team kicks ass, doesn't matter how many times that kind of wrench gets thrown at them, they they will always deliver. Yeah. Yeah, my team certainly stands among ones that do deliver on that stuff. But gen- generally, we know it's rare that, I, it, from my view, I don't know what happens like else, you know, above me or whatever. But yeah, norm- rarely do I witness that happening. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about. The, let, let's go back to the big team environment again, because I want to, there, there's so many, when a design gets this big, right? Especially like an open world game, there's tons of design, right? Like there's, there's a lot of things on varying levels and it still has to start somewhere. Right. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about like a game. Let's imagine, uh, let's imagine agents of mayhem two is, is in development. Right. We're in pre-production on Agents of Mayhem. And for those that don't know, I was at one time in pre-production on Agents of Mayhem too. Uh, (laughs) That didn't pan out. Um, But so when you're talking about a big game that does have a foundation, right? Like game is shipped. We're looking at a sequel. There's you're now. uh, The the design is is limited, right? And not in a bad way necessarily, but, but there's a limit to what you can do. You want to take what you had and you want to improve upon it and you want to fix the things that were bad and you want to add some cool stuff you didn't get to or some new ideas that you came with from yeah. that idea, right? Or from, from what was built. Those are major concepts you just said very casually though. They are. Yeah, absolutely. Like being able to, knowing the things that you didn't get to put in the first Agents of Mayhem that you know you can in the second. So huge for a designer. Absolutely. Yeah, as well as learning from the mistakes that occur in the first one and fixing those. That's huge. And the player sentiment will likely be, you know, very positive around solving those things. So yeah, just saying like those, those are all. Titanic. Sorry, I'm throwing out casual things here that are made. <laughs> no big deal. You know. That's just the way my brain works. No, <laughs> no, but, but, but actually it's, it's really good. That you pointed out how integral those are. Let, let's talk about them one at a time. Right. So, so when you're designing for something that's, Hey, we didn't do well enough on this one thing in that game before. Right. And we know we need to improve it. So let's talk about that specifically. We are going into the next version of this game. How how do we prioritize that? Right. Like how do we start a design that fixes that problem? And then also, you know, like how do we know the right way to do that for yet another game? Like where, where would you kind of think about starting with that? Casually um, galaxy brain. <laughs> yeah, that actually just threw me off in a great way. I thought that was hilarious. Um, I don't know, Jameson, where would you start? That's a big one. It is a big one. And I've had to do this and it sucks. But so, all right. So I think, I think the important thing is, all right, first of all, I'm, I'm having a self-awareness moment here and that you calling me out on that made me kind of think through that a bit 
that was a very casual <laughs> way for me to say that. And I, I'm just so used at this. I've been doing this so long at this point. Sure. I'm kind of like, those are things that I'm used to, right? Like those are, those are obviously oh, you awesome. think about this, you think about that, like these are considerations. Um, but if I'm thinking about how do we improve specifically on something that we feel like we didn't do well enough before, it needs to become a pillar of the new game, right? Uh, sure. Yeah, I think absolutely. it needs to be something that we, we put up and we say, hey, team, we, we are agreeing that this, this is a problem. And I think you start with the problem, right? We may have solutions in mind, but you and I both know solutions aren't what we're looking for yet necessarily because our solution might not be the right one. Instead, right. I think it's important to start with what was the problem? Because the community plays a thousand different ideas of of how we should fix it, right? That's right. So if we start with, hey, pillar number one is, you know, this feature, uh, you know, didn't work well. Our our first our first idea is how to how to solve that, right? And then then you also have the, the other things we talked about, which is like, what do we want to add? What's what's the thing that we didn't get to do before that we put off to the next one? Is and do we feel like the game that we built is that this feature, whatever it is, is important enough to make a part of the next game, right? Sure. All the prioritization, right? Yeah. Why did we cut it before, or is it something we thought of during the process of it? It was never actually part of the plan, but we we've seen it and we're like, hey, this would be a really cool thing to add, like co-op for Agents of Mayhem, right? Like I think that's that's something that was cut very early that I think could have a huge impact on a game like that in a sequel, yeah. right? So, so then that could become like a second big pillar, right? Like we want to fix whatever that one thing was. We want to add co-op and then maybe we're talking about a sequel here on a triple a open world title, maybe one other thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, and then that's it, right? That, that's really what you should try to do as far as like major changes to a sequel, in my opinion. And and I've learned that just through trying to do too much too many times and then eventually having to cut something or failing at trying to do too much stuff. Right. You know, and uh, when you're looking at, let's say, this three-pillar approach, <clears throat> I think it's I think people forget that people in leadership can sometimes forget that it doesn't always have to be creative. The three right. pillars don't have to be like design-focused. For example, I have seen pillars that brought tremendous joy to me that were like, we need to, I don't know, um, elevate the the UX science and art around all of this blah, or we need to actually iterate on these particular uh, tools because that'll make uh, people who use the tools' lives more effective in these particular ways. And these are measurable things that, that we can argue, right? Because ultimately all this comes back into a phrase we've not mentioned yet, which is uh, which are KPIs, mm. key performance indicators. Yeah. What are those and why do they matter, right? They are, they are the literal things that are going to measure the success or lack of success for the product you are working on. Yeah. And every culture, you know, is going to handle that differently. But once you know those, you can define, you can really understand business goals and creative goals. And once you have, you know, sets of those, you can start figuring out uh, which pillars are going to encompass um, the reasonable majority based on priority of all those KPIs. So, and from those three pillars, you then start figuring out everything else we were just... So, So, KPIs, let's talk about that. When do you decide that? As early as possible. And, um, and I don't think that is, I don't think that's done often enough. I, I am guilty of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, no. Me too. Me too. For sure. It's something 
helped uh, educate me on. Um, I, I never prioritize here. I, I very much um, designed from the heart, not from the head, until I went to EA and learned all that. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I synthesize both now, right? But I was, I was very heart, like at Agents of Mayhem. I didn't give a shit about anything, but like just the creative this, creative that. Not, I never thought about um, the business side or whatever. Okay. Publishing side when right. I was there. So, anywho, that was what you were, you and others, you did that. I just made fun, and it was it was awesome. It was the dream. <laughs> oh, I didn't want to, but that was, <laughs> those are things no, right? I had to care it, about. It's, it's a weird burden. Like there are other benefits to it, but yeah, you lose the in the trenches creative side quite a bit. I I am. I am 90% heart like you're talking about. Yeah. So the whole like having to be the the head side of that kind of thing it, it, it's painful for me and it's something that I never quite got used to. Still haven't fully gotten well not used to. I I'm used to doing it, but I still don't love it. You know what I mean? Like I right. I want to I want to go in and and build something because I think it's cool. That's right. Yeah, no game design is a form of art to me. Yeah. Not anything else but yeah i totally tangent us away from the wherever we were i don't know where we were well, we were talking about uh how we, how we build a sequel like where we how we kind of oh, structure yeah, yeah, that yeah, right? right so the pillars and all that yes yeah. you, you figure those out again i don't think all three uh changes to features or anything i mean like, like we just aom2 pursue a suite of social features and so one of the three pillars are focused on social engagement mm -hmm. and social retention for the for the player and what all that could mean <clears throat> so that's really cool but then again you could have a pillar that's like hey we ran into all these implementation issues on agents of mayhem so we need a new suite of solutions and our tools to solve uh, all these things uh -huh. now that that didn't happen to me i can't praise my personal experience enough like sure once in a while i'd run into something but um you know one of the well, you call them tech designers at Volition, but that's not what I think a tech designer is at all, but that's for another talk. Um, the tech designers there, <laughs> tools programmers, <clears throat> tech designers, whatever, would come over and help me. I'd be like, man, I really wish I had a node in our visual scripting language that could do X, Y, Z or help manage this or whatever. And they just whip that up for me same day and be like, yo, grab that latest CL from ProForce, bud. And then bam, you know. From ProForce. <laughs> Force, pre-force, something like that. And, um, Wait, was that an actual slip? No. Okay. Of course it wasn't. No, no, I didn't I'm, think no, no, so. I'm, but... I'm making a joke. Okay, because, I thought uh, so. But, all right. A lot of students that would say pro-force or pre-force, and it was one of the most triggering things. Oh, my God. It is. Absolutely. And, and they, they didn't know they were, they were, well, maybe they did know they were triggering me. No, they didn't. Uh. It's 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 pre-force. Oh, yeah, yeah, like basically, it's pre-force most of the time. Pre-force. Oh, that's so funny. I... I am a huge Perforce fan. I I have been for years. Uh, I do not like using it with Unity because that's a, a a dumpster fire for the most part in my well, opinion. Well, because the file stuff and all that from yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. Unity and Perforce were not meant to be the same way other version controls were. Yeah. Yeah. No, per Perforce. It's because of the visual client, right? I th I think at least when I can interact with a pretty clean visual client like P4V for poor or Perforce. Um, I, I have a lot of comfort with that years and years of where um, I think objectively in some of my side efforts, uh, GitHub it still ranks very highly to me. The way the architect is a bit different and uh, frankly makes more sense to me at times based on what I'm trying to do. Oh, so, man. But they don't have a nice visual client and there's like third party clients that have been built and I mean I'm not very knowledgeable here. I just Google shit and you know make things work. 
That's I, half of design, uh, man. I, no, it okay. is. But, but yeah, uh, <laughs> Perforce is certainly the one I've used most of my career. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's good. I like it. And they have a good GDC presence, side note, at least some years. I remember one of the years, I don't know, maybe 2015 or so, somewhere through at GDC, they had like a nice keg. They had some good beers. I got some socks. Some um, socks? Yeah, you know, they had some cool stuff. They had like these these huge socks you could get with like little, of course, bees. I think bees were the logo at the time. Maybe it still is. <laughs> yeah, I've still got those somewhere. And there, oh there was like gosh. two or three other things. That Perforce got t-shirts, you know, obvious standard stuff. But but yeah, that and a beer. I just stood there and talked Perforce with them for like 30 minutes. Great time. I was already their customer and I continued to do so, but they just... And they didn't deprioritize me because that either, you know, we, we hung there and just hung out as people came and went. That that's actually a really important note. Like it bothers me when someone is only focused on gaining new business Yeah, because yeah, keeping yeah. your customers happy should be, if not as important, more important, right? Like it's I think it should be more important. Yeah. yeah. It, it, like it's a burden hand. You, you have the customer. Yeah. Why would you jeopardize what you, can't what you actually have versus a possibility yeah i mean it's all relative but assuming they're relatively similar in uh whatever you're going to gain well especially in this industry that person might eventually be someone making that decision at another company to use perforce or not right oh that's so, right like there, there are companies that i certainly wouldn't say here that if you ask me behind closed doors hey I'm, i might do business with someone would be like don't you do it with that company right that company has burned me and i've watched them burn other people and don't you do Yep. Um, so yeah, no, that, that and that's super important. exists and they, it, it's, yes, it is. Yeah. All right. I'm going to throw, throw a little curveball. We're talking about, we're talking about, you know, those three pillars or whatever. What if I said one of our pillars is to make the sequel to agents of mayhem as an example, the most accessible game possible. Love it. Don't understand why that would be a pillar, but love it immediately support it uh, when i said understand i'm like i don't i don't know what the greater play is there but uh, yeah um, but some like but, we got the directive right yeah yeah, we, yeah right and that that's our directive to figure out yeah because you know that that immediately makes me wonder okay well what what what's our current understanding of our target demographics like who are they uh what do they need um in particular on the accessibility point which areas of accessibility are we focusing in what priority order why how um, what science are we using? What research do we have behind it? Are we hiring any third-party specialists to support this or that? Because I don't think any of us are qualified to do it necessarily. Right. And and on and on. So I would just have a million questions. And it's not just being annoying with the questions. Like I'd be, the more context I have as a designer, the better I can uh, make my design decisions. Yep. And me understanding the end user, I don't know if there's any detail more important than that. Yeah. Um. Like, if I don't know who I'm designing for, I am, I'm already in just Yoloville with everything well, else. And here, here's so. the interesting thing. Like, I think one of the things that that we we did fairly well at Volition was identifying who our audience is, right? And saying this is who we're designing a game for, right? We have these three. Like, let's imagine we like one of the things we did there was we had like our eight player types, right? And we're like, here's the three that this game fits in for, right? At least at an ideal right. level, this is this is what we're shooting for. This is the game we're trying to make. So we had already said who should care about this game, right? So let's imagine that all went very well. We made the right choice. This is the people we're making this game for. And coming out of the first game, let's say, and obviously this is all just example at this point, but right. 
let's say we came out of it and we felt good about who our target audience was, who we felt we were making the game for, and that's who it landed with, yay, right? Now we're saying accessibility. That doesn't change those other things, right? So now what you're really saying is out of the audience that we have built and that we were designing for, we are now saying make it as accessible as possible to them, right? That's one scenario, right? Yeah, that's or, the preferred scenario. That is I the think. preferred scenario. But if yeah. someone comes in with a mandate that says, make it the most accessible game period, that could even change that, right? What becomes more important? Yeah, yeah no, totally, because it, it comes down to what, what senses are at what metrics of disability that we are trying to support. Yeah. Um, like, is it is it color blindness, which is kind of a low hanging fruit example here? Okay, I, with that, all three types, I guess. Okay, cool. Um, you know, there's a lot of public science behind that that we can work off of, and a lot of games that have nailed that already. Yeah. <clears throat> there's even entire operating systems that have nailed that already. I remember the first time I encountered Apple's colorblindless colorblind mode, and how it could apply to any app running on your phone. That that blew my mind. I have not so, turned that on. I did not know about this. Yeah, so I'm an Android person, <laughs> so I'm kind of talking in some ignorance here, but I know it exists from just my job and encountering yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, in concept, it was so cool of them to to even attempt to support that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, morality aside, I just always wonder what what, what what's the measurable data there like? Um feel like I ran into a statistic and I'm making this up totally where like 10% of people are colorblind. So, yeah. uh, l let's say that's a thing. If that's a thing. Okay. So do we think if we, if we're just assuming averages here and we look at our three demographics that we're targeting out of the eight that we researched and stuff, mm -hmm. do, we, do we think generally speaking, we can elevate our engagement of those three user groups by about 10% if we support all colorblindness? Yeah. Like, do we think that that's how that like directly proportionally correlates? Okay, cool. Um, then that begins to make more sense to me. And again, if, if that's the perspective and the reasoning, that influences the design decisions I'm going to make. But but like you said, in the kind of harsher situation where I'm just left in the dark and I'm told, man, just make the most accessible game you can. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to remove all violence from the game. <laughs> like, 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 I mean, if you just give me a blank slate, like I'm that's a really good point. Shit out of this now like, kids can play it. Like, right? Like, <laughs> that's a, like, that's you know, a really good point. <laughs> so uh, that'd probably be my like sarcastic response to whoever in publishing is telling me this, because I would be like, "Yo, man, uh, what, what do I? Yeah, just yeah. There's a lot of questions there. There's a lot of different types to support, and um, it really requires specialists in this field to come in and help a dev team really figure it out. Yeah. It does. EA actually has a whole division dedicated to this, and I think Sony does too, and some others. And it's most of the bigger companies that do. We're taking it, yeah. There's some, there's some really good um, like third party places that you can consult with and 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 bring in for that kind of stuff too, which is really good. Um, right. But also, you know, Volition was really good about hiring UX people and people that cared about that kind of thing, and then also internal advocates, right? Like one of the one of the things at Volition, the reason that uh, the visual scripting engine got colorblind mode was because of me, right? Cause I was like, literally like as, as Jeff Keeley was working on it, I was like, dude, I, I can't tell where this line is going. And like, I can't see the color yeah, difference sucks. between these two things. Yeah. And so, but he was super like, Oh, like I didn't like people don't think about it unless they're forced to think about it. No, that's right. That's right. right. It's so, all perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Cause like when, when we're talking about this, like, like let's imagine that 
you know, executive producer on project says, and this, so this isn't, this is coming internal. This is head of the project says, Hey guys, last of us two was just called the most accessible video game that's ever been created. Right. What are we going to do about that? I've had conversations like this many times, similar to this, right? Not this type of feature specifically, but Hey, this other game came out and is doing this really cool thing that we haven't thought of yet. How, what are we going to do about that? I'm like, Oh, what? All right. First of all, what? Like where you're in production, you know, but, but these are very real things that have happened to me many times. And it, 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 I think to your point, what are the questions that you have to ask? Because we need to frame what, what it is they're asking for. And a lot of times as a designer, you have to, to dig into what they mean, not what they say, right? Like what oh, exactly. do they really care about? I, yep. Yep. That is almost every day of my career. And, yep. um, <clears throat> Yeah, no, it's it's a big difference between do we need to support colorblind mode, which isn't the end of the world to add in production. You, I mean, it's terrible to add anything in production, but like I get it, I could see an argument. Versus, um, again, like, well, we want this to be e for everyone, like what you know, uh, John just said there in the channel, and well, shit, <laughs> making agents of a have e for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh let me gut the entire narrative basically let me gut like, like so many voice lines so many animations so just the the aesthetic the attitude of agents of mayhem there's no way you, you pull that off no not um, as an e-title like that so, <laughs> can you even it, make an e-title anymore like just it's just across the board like <laughs> everything is is at least pg-13 right like you need Wait, what is I'm the blanking. what is the? I was just trying to think of what is it. It's like yeah, I'm, it's an e, it's an ESRB rating, right? Yeah, uh, I'm. We know this. It's just I'm I'm blank. I'm eight thirty uh, on a Wednesday evening. I'm and, I'm blanking. You know, yeah, there's like infamature, and I'm failing on the the teenage, the middle ones. But someone in the chat will know. Yeah, I'm I'm even failing at a quick look for it. So, <laughs> oh, here we go. It's it's e. E10 teen. and teen. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. T for yeah. teen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then mature. And then then what there's adult. <clears throat> it's AO now. A adults only. Beyond mature? 18 plus. Yeah. Okay. So So that's like Oh, so it says prolonged scenes of intense violence, graphic sexual content or or gambling with real currency. That's an interesting uh thing to throw yeah. in with that thinking about those three and american culture versus like i don't know if i were to generalize european culture like western europe or something um you know we just see things a little differently yeah like like we we demonize sexuality in these particular groups which i mean there's reasons and there's arguments and you know all that plenty of validity in there but mm -hmm. then you look at again i'm super generalizing but you look at a different culture that may uh embrace that more than the average american culture yeah, and I wonder if the AO rating in Europe uh, follows the same rules or not. I have no idea. It just they have, they have Peggy on. there, right? Yeah, that's right. They do have Peggy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess it is inherently a little different. I, I'm going right, to see. You know, what we would call extreme violence might be less than what another culture might call extreme that violence. That is true. Like, like we're pretty prone to violence that is in true. our media. Um, but sexuality, we're not relative to other cultures. Uh, yeah, definitely, so, definitely. Anyway, just just provoking thought makes makes you wonder. So theirs, they have uh, three, which is suitable for everyone. Seven, which 
could possibly be pr uh, frightening to younger children. Um, so it's, it's a violence. Violence is the only thing they're caring about here. 12 is uh, vi shows violence of a slightly more graphic nature. Sexual innuendo and posturing can be present. Uh, while language must be mild. 16 uh, is once the depiction of violence or sexual activity reaches a stage that looks the same as it would in real life. So 16-year-olds wow. si so can see sex as it is in real life. That's interesting. But also, uh, bad language can be more extreme, and, while, and uh, tobacco and illegal drugs can be present. That's At 16. Yeah. That's definitely See, that's, that's a, a little more lax. Right yeah. There, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Very not okay with that. Yeah. And then oh. they have an 18, and then that's it. Like, there is no... Yeah. But they have these other disclaimers. Like, they've got, like, apparently things you can tag on, which are, like, a bad language, a fear, a gambling, a discrimination tag that can be added like to them. Yeah, it's see, it's that, a nice that, way to do that. Yeah, that optional extra... No, that, that I think that's the right way to do it. Yeah, that seems I do a bit too. more sophisticated. Well, because like ours, it, it since it can mean so many different things, I would like to know what it is that's offensive in this title, exactly. right? Especially as a parent, I yeah. imagine. Like I'm not a parent, but yeah. uh, you know, you're trying to figure out which is your child or whatever. And yeah, the more information the box can give the parent, who's possibility not a gamer at all. Um, yeah. yeah. And so this is an interesting thing where you know we're building a game at, at Volition. We built games that were often uh, they this was a consideration, right? This had to be a consideration in the games that we made. And it, and so we tried to stay within certain boundaries with the things that we would build. And, but we have to think about it across, you know, both of these platforms, as far as like how that game is going to get rated in other countries, or you don't care so much about other countries because the bulk of your, you know, sales is coming from one place. Right. And that's, that's sometimes part of the debate, right? Does this feature go in? Cause it's a little, you know, racy, whatever you want to call it. It's going to impact us here, but maybe not so much there, vice versa. You know, like sometimes that goes into your decision making. How many times yeah. have you ever worked on a game where you had to like change the blood content because it wouldn't land in, in Germany or something like that? I've had to do that many times. Like, no. <laughs> I mean, I, ideally you would build it in such a way that all of your scripts that would call for whatever blood activities would all be governed by a particular conditions, so you could just turn them off. But that's, that's also really object-oriented, right? Or, and with, you know, and Generally, that's, yeah. Or component-based, yeah, I should say. And yeah, and not we didn't always build that way. So. <laughs> we still don't often build that way. But yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Like Kill it's, switches are your friend. Yeah, it's just funny to think about how, you know, when, when you're sitting down to design a game, like we were talking about at the beginning of, of the show, like you're you probably should think about this kind of stuff at least a little bit, but it didn't come up for us until now an, eight or, an hour and a half later, right? <laughs> I, I never think about this. I don't either. Uh, I don't either. Like, like, that's so <laughs> above me. Uh, well, one, I can't influence it really. And two, um, my understanding of target demographics needs to be a little more specific. Well, like yeah. you already said, you know, Volition had, you know, like eight archetypes or whatever of players that they might have looked into and they decided these were the three that were pursuing and these are the reasons why or whatever. Yeah. And most studios have their version of that. Um, that makes sense. I think we do a lot better than that, but that's a that's a fine starting place. Yeah. Hmm. I want to know beat by beat what each of those demographics are going to be doing in my game. 
Now, it depends on genre big time, right? Like Agents of Mayhem, Sandboxy, you're running around in Seoul. You do have a critical path narrative. We can predict that stuff. We clearly design and pace that out accordingly. But And then we unlock particular side content as you play and all. Um, actually, AOM is pretty linear with the appearance. It's semi-linear. Like, it, it's, it lets you make some choices, but ultimately you're still on the same rails at the end mm-hmm. of the day. Um, you're just choosing how many options do you want to ride those rails with once in a while. Do you want more agents? Do you want more progression in particular agents? On and on. But all that's optional. Yeah. Um, it's really funny. As you were going through that thought process, I was like right with you. Like you would say something, I'd be like, oh, what about? Then you would say it. Like, well, what about? <laughs> oh, then you'd say it. So <laughs> that was funny. So yeah. it, it's it's interesting because, you know, what what you were kind of just describing is when you when you narrow in on who's playing your game and why you're tailoring to them, you have to know that, right? Like there's a specific reason that we're doing this. I hope so. There should be. Yeah, right. Absolutely. There should be. And, and it's tough sometimes to decide who is the important player at a particular time. Oh, yeah. That's such a fun one. That's such a fun one because you're trying to find ways for each demographic to feel celebration, to feel all the positive can make them given um experience that they're having yeah and yeah no that's that's uh man i'm so glad you said that i think that's critical to um like super high quality game design but i think a lot of games never stop to think about that or they just to that granularly yeah 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 well and but but also maybe they were and they just didn't it didn't hit the mark oh you're absolutely right you're absolutely right yeah i'm sure a lot more people think than can act but by all means yeah and that's that's always the fun thing. And when people people that don't know how to make games and aren't familiar with the design process and, and how development goes, that there's usually that idea of, oh, I've got this idea for a game. This is gonna be great, right? Can someone build this for me? That's that's often the you know, the the uninformed kind of thought process about a game, where even us as as seasoned developers will have an idea for something that makes total sense and everyone's on board for it. But then we don't quite hit that mark or, you know, like in, in this case, we're talking about three different player types. Potentially, we may end up with a game that the that one player type feels fully satisfied and another one feels like that they they were constantly not able to do what felt right to them because the other two players had their say, you know, as far as like we built the game in that way for them. So it's it's tough. It's, it's a constant thing you have to be thinking about, you know, throughout the entire development. That's not easy. Yes, That's not easy. No, no. And it's, it's funny. I've, I've had the opportunity to uh, help mentor a couple other people I work with that are not designers, but I'm mentoring them on game design. Oh, okay. They, they told their managers they want to learn about game design. They got connected with me. I take an hour every week to chat with them about stuff. It's been a lot of fun. And um, anyway, they, they, they come off with, with this, kind of the same sentiment you just said. Like they, they just – they don't see it this way at all. They don't even think about the problem set that you and I think about that we need to solve. Yeah. Which in a way makes sense, right? Like that's not their job, you know, like as far as like, that's what we should be thinking about and they have other things to think about. But back to what you said originally, the more you at least have, and and I like the way you said, I think you said a junior level understanding of someone else's discipline. That, that makes a huge difference because at the very least, when you're having these conversations, you can understand a bit of why these decisions are being made, but then also it, you can translate that over to what you're doing and, and help make more informed decisions in your discipline if you understand what someone else 
cares about and needs to know in order to to make something effectively. Right. I don't do enough of that these days. I I mean, I still understand, you know, I, I can always have intelligent conversations with programmers. Like I've always been able to do that. And you and with but with artists, it, 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 well, audio guys, no clue. Like when it, when it comes <laughs> to audio, I'm just like, can you? Like, here's what I'm thinking. Can you tell me if this is even close to like reasonable? And because I've I've never even like remotely understood it. What's that? I, lo I love working with audio. That's oh, like my too. favorite discipline to objectively work with. Um, but but not because I don't understand it, but because I think I do have. So like, there's so many principles about game design, or really just universal design that apply to uh, composition, to audio composition, mm -hmm. whether it's sound effects or like music and music and loop and stuff. And anywho, well. We'll have to talk sometime offline because I, I bet I can connect some dots for you pretty fast that are mind blowing. Yeah, no, been, I would I've love been mixing to. Mixing music again and it just makes me think about it. So interesting. Yeah, that's just something that I've, I just haven't really dug into. You know, like it's in every project that I've worked on, audio has been at the tail end of the project, and yeah, so usually it is right, and that yeah. sucks. And so my interaction with them the is like, here's here was our plan here's how much time you have, you know, like, what do we need to do? And, and like, I, I'm someone who always tries to include people as early as possible, right? So that, you know, we can figure out the, the right way to do this. If there's concerns with a particular discipline that we can work through those, figure out what we need to do. But man, audio gets crushed at the end. And so it's almost always been like, let's put out a fire together. I don't have time to learn what you're doing, how you do it, why, you know, I want to just know what do you need from me? How, how can I make this better? You know, like, yeah. let's figure this out. Let's problem solve this together quickly. Uh, but man, the whole like philosophy behind it and that kind of stuff, I'm just, it's, it's, it's a little bit beyond me. Right. And that's the one discipline that is really a bit of a enigma for me right currently. So yes, I definitely want to chat about that. Word. That's a uh, 3d modeling for me for what it's worth. <laughs> like, I, like I get it. If I, 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 once upon a time I could open Maya basic stuff yeah but uh, yeah i i can't even i can't even process doing that like 40 plus hours a week just geometry modeling i, I can't i can't do <laughs> materials i can try to do animations a lot of other artistic-esque things but not geometry i go as you far as what i need to head. white box right like let me build out what i need to do oh, yeah. to prove the game that's cool <laughs> yeah but i i think i understand enough about it to understand what they're doing so at least there's there's that part uh, but man, it's, but, but also as a level designer throughout my career, my art partner was usually my closest partner, right? Like we were, we were together all the time and, and it was very important that as I'm blocking something that we're having conversations about getting across what I'm trying to do, helping them think creatively or creatively within the borders that I'm creating and, and having that conversation of here's what I'm trying to accomplish what are you trying to accomplish and where do I need to leave you the space to do that? Oh yeah. Well said. Like That's that. exactly right. That's what a good content designer would talk about. Yeah. It's good times. I miss that, man. I really do miss oh, doing it that. It sounds amazing. I've always looked envious on that role. Like I think it'd be so fun. I always think about like the making of Skyrim video and the making of Halo 3 video way before I even got to game development. And um, yeah. No, it's it's content design seems like the coolest damn role in all of game development. It's fun. Not what I do, but I just think it's super cool. Yeah. Because yeah, you, you're building those final layers between, like, 
where I might be influencing features and systems and other stuff, you know, you're in there doing the, the attention to detail, the moment to moment experience the user is going to have uh, from a, from most of their senses, you know, like, like you're involved with the audio, like what, where it's being cued and stuff, at least you're involved with a lot of the artistic stuff. You're, yeah. you're involved with all the things they see and hear is my point. Yeah. It's uh, literally I, creating the experience. Subconscious and I'm trying to affect their habits yeah. and I'm trying to let them progress and all. Yeah. You get all the front end stuff. It's yeah. It's super badass. It's really interesting because like the, the thing that I love most about level design is like people provide all these pieces and I get to take those pieces and then make something that the player's yeah. gonna put a controller in their hand and experience. And that's that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Now a, a counter argument though, I would say designing something like agents is the same like it's there that's in their hand the whole time. Right. Regardless of everyone else's levels or those experiences, the thing they're doing moment to moment, the thing that requires the game to be fun for them to continue to play is the mechanics. Right. Like the le if the level level can be great, but if what they're doing with the mechanics sucks, then who cares? You know, so it's uh, it's definitely they're both equally important, I think. But it's it's all about like where your passion is and, and what you're good at. Yeah, absolutely. One of these days, you and I are going to work together again, and uh, we're going to make something cool together. It's going to be fun. Yeah, no, I look forward to that. I think that day will come. I hope so. I'm getting old, man. I don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that uh, many more years to do this. I want to retire soon. <laughs> no, I don't. Man, I, I don't know if I'll ever stop. <laughs> some form. Yeah, no, I. It's it's truly what gets me up out of bed every morning. Fantastic. Yeah. Jameson Will buddy designer movie. <laughs> Be like an odd couple movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, if there was a movie on the time we lived together. Oh, that's true. There's a, so much so much opportunity there. Sometime we need to sit down and just like rehash that time because there's a, there's a lot of things that that uh that were great about that, especially all the ping pong that we played. Ooh, oh yeah. my gosh, we played so much ping pong. Yep, that's how I've been making friends where I live now. Is I've, I've well, your um, mic cut out there for a second. What'd you say? Oh, um, sometimes some uh, newer friends I've made, and I they have ping pong tables, and so I've been able to, you know, use the ping pong skills that I gained from Volition. Nice. I I've got room in my garage, and I've uh, I've been tempted, but but I don't have wow. anybody right now to play with. So I'm like, yeah, eh. that's the tough part. Do you, um, uh, Rusty Simsprot has not been on here. He was on here. He's one of my first guests. Oh, he was super yeah. early. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because like between me, you and him, we had this way where Rusty could not beat me. I could not beat you. And you. Yeah. He always beat me. You and me. I just happened to play more. So you were number one on the, <laughs> the uh, ladder. Guys, we had an actual ping pong ladder at Volition. <laughs> and then, and then Josh Cooper getting in there with us. And uh, like, it was good. Yeah, it was it was fun, man. Even the ones that weren't good, I just loved when they would try. Like we had a bunch of people hop in and. That was so much fun. I I miss that a lot, actually. And not God, there yeah. was so many good things about that, right? Because one, a game didn't take very long. It was a really great distraction. One, two, three times a day, right? Like right. while everybody else is outside smoking, we can go play a game of ping pong, right? That's right. Uh, the competitive nature of it, the uh, the the ladder itself and that impetus yeah. to like you know I want to be on top, man. It was 
And what was really funny though is we started with a lot more people than the four or five of us that that continued to play. We did. But, we had like a dozen or so. Yeah, yeah. It, it was so good. But we just we just wrecked them all, so they uh, they gave up. And Rage quit, and then you farmed <laughs> me. You farmed me for rank one. Is literally what happened. And I just kept doing it. We I was played. Suffered. I was like, I'm going to beat Jameson. We played two or three times a day. You and I. So we did. We did. But the, like you said, it was a great time to take a break. Get the blood yep. flowing. Just get away yep. from the death. Um, it it really helped. Yeah. Oh my God! It's already ten to nine. Yes, sir. We got ten minutes left. All right. Is there anything that you have in mind we're hoping to talk about that we have not discussed yet? Um. Let's see. We've kind of hit on. I've got some notes over here. Let me let me use here. So. We hit on business goals, sentiments, and stuff, technical constraints. We didn't really get into much and how that affects one's process. But, I mean, spoilers, you can only build things within the technical constraints you have, right? So Generally. By that, I mean tools and API. Yeah, right. So whatever you can access. Um, we hit target demographics quite a bit. And, you know, there, there's more than one discipline that supports the target demographics. We kept talking about it conceptually. But, like, in case this interests someone listening and they're not necessarily into game design, right? Like. Data analyst, data science is a really big emerging field. It's been big for a few years now. Um, there's a huge demand for it. That demand continues. Same with user experience research. I think there's uh, a consistent demand there for good UXR people. Yeah. Um, that is something see. that I have not had a true partner in in development yet. Like I want to work hand in hand with a UX designer as part of my process sometime. And I've not done that yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's awesome. I, I like EA's fantastic about this. I have yeah. uh, UXR that I work with really about any time I. Want. That's so, awesome, man! I love that, and it yeah, probably is becoming tremendous. more common now. I hope. So. I hope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least with bigger companies. Right, because <clears throat> yeah, the more than once I've I've thought about. I mean, not recently, but years ago, I thought about data analytics, or UXR as a profession. Yeah. Because of how useful and secure those positions can be. Um, like they're hard to do well, and if you can do it well, you'll have a good career. Mm. Um, let's see. Yeah, no, I think we hit everything else. Competitive analysis was a big thing I wanted to talk about. I'm glad we did that earlier. Um, That's so you know, important. Designers often have to talk to various stakeholders, right? So those stakeholders might be random marketing, uh, publishing, production, product management, uh, really whoever's writing your check. So sometimes like I'm, entire studios are sometimes operated by one guy who's writing the checks. I'm glad you said that because communication and public speaking are such a big part of, of design and that getting your idea across and making sure people understand what you're trying to do and selling them on what you're trying to do can be the, the key about oh, whether yeah. or not that feature happens. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Under understanding the basics of sales. In fact, a wise man named Rob Coble had me read about sales that I would blank on the name of it right now. I so have it, but it's a book about up. sales. Yeah. About sales. And it has nothing to do with game development. It's just about sell. It's like the art of the sellers. I, I, I'll find it. I'll find it and link it in your discord or okay, something. But, cool. um, I, I read that he loaned it to me and I read it and it absolutely blew my mind and changed my perspective. And I had a completely different appreciation, like not like actual appreciation for like door to door salesmen and, and other sales people that work in like a Best Buy or what have you. And, mm -hmm. Anyway, I, like, I never, I was never disrespectful to them. I always appreciated them. But when I really got to read an entire book from their perspective, I was like, my God. One, that's 
I now understand all the like psychological things they're trying to do to me. So that's right. fascinating. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but two, at the end of the day, you know, they got to sell the thing. Like that's literally what they. It's their livelihood. Make their livelihood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not it's not malicious. It's not like bad. It's just um. Generally not bad. Stuff. Generally right? not bad. So right. the best is when someone is using all those tactics and they also believe in and the product is actually valuable. Right. I, I, well, for sure. That's the that's the wombo. And uh, and as but, designers, but no. that's what you want. You like you exactly. you're definitely not out there selling something that you think is bad for the game. And right, like you're it's something right. you believe in, and that's makes it easier to sell too, which is nice. Yeah. So those those skills, those skills of pitching the idea and conveying all the layers of it, um, can't be stressed enough. And I don't know how well that can be taught. Like, um, it's like a lot a, of experience. A, it's experience. That's the thing yeah. is, is that the, the kind of like, if you went to college classes or some sort of training courses elsewhere, whatever, like, I think it just comes down to doing it over and over and over yeah. and figuring it out for yourself that there's not a one size fits all for this one at all. I think even and the I, I learning was, is, is there, you're being taught how to get good experience doing it. Right. Like yeah, yeah, you yeah. gotta go do it. Yeah. No, totally. I remember I, uh, I actually withdrew out of an undergrad class that was a public speaking class because I felt like I made such a fool of myself one time. I was terrified of public speaking when I was like 23, 24 years old. Huh. And, uh, and it was funny because when I, when I left there, I graduated from there, and I chose to go to Full Sail for my graduate school. Um, I remember telling myself on the drive down, I was just like kind of rewiring myself. I knew who I wanted to be versus who I was at the time more than that was like 12, 13 years ago now. And, um, Anyway, one of the tenets to all this is public speaking. I told myself, I was like, I'm never going to be afraid of a stage or any person, and I want to speak to everyone, period, and, and all the obvious public speaking skills. And uh, somehow that worked. Somehow that worked for me, and I just came in acting like I owned the place and um, gained a lot of confidence on public speaking that was absolutely false confidence. That, see, until I made it and that's, all that. that. Well, <laughs> right. There's a difference between false confidence and make it, uh, fake it till you make it, right? Because it, I think in that in that regard, you knew who you wanted to be and you knew that being that was attainable, right? right? You just had to get there. And so you convinced yourself to do it until you felt comfortable doing it, right? Like yeah. that's, I always tell people, one of the things about anxiety and imposter syndrome, which I deal with both, is... I've, what I've learned to do is for my outside and presence to be one thing, right? That, that is learned and taught and gets the point across the way that I want inside. Very different. There's paralysis. There's fear. There's like all these different things that are happening inside of me that I've just learned to kind of like deal with because what I need is to be able to communicate something properly, no matter the situation. So I, I learned how to stand in front of thousands of people and talk about something. And there was a time in my life, just like you were out that terrified me, absolutely yeah. terrified me. But now I've done it so much where I'm like, it, it really doesn't matter. Like I have a process for preparing myself for it and it doesn't matter how many people there are. Like it's going to be fine. And I find I have less anxiety, the less I prepare. I don't know how Re common that is, but really? yeah, I don't prepare at all for anything at like besides a few bullet points here in a notepad, like you told me, let's talk about game design process. And I'm like, cool. Or like even the times where I've done presentations at conferences and like, obviously I made the slides, but I probably made those the night before in the hotel room kind of thing, unless they made me, I don't know, pre-approve something ahead of time. But the point is, yeah, I, uh, I, I wing it almost all the time. 
Because that's because that, that's, that's what, what you learned. That's what yeah, works yeah, for and, you, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and again, I don't let my my mind have time to be anxious because I just keep it blocked out until it's showtime, and then it's like, oh shit, it's showtime. Yeah. No time to be anxious now. You just got to deliver. Yeah. And yeah, you just you flip into that that public speaking state of mind that has no room. Well, my, my version has no room for anxiety. Fortunately. Yeah, it's a mode, right? And it's, it's about how do you prepare yourself to get into that mode. So, and for me, it's about like I. I have an ideal presentation in my mind that I go over several times. And so like in my ideal world, I would go out and I would, I would do that. But once I'm out there, I, I, I can totally like, if I miss a point, who cares? You know, like that it's, it's not something right. that right. becomes debilitating. Cause it's like, now I'm just doing my best out here and I'm, that's all I can really do, you know? Yeah. And luckily that's worked out. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, everyone in the audience, anytime I've ever been in the audience at a public speaker's nerve, I, I'm sitting there completely, and I'll even cheer them on if I'm like, well, all of us go through our versions of this. Yeah. Well, man, we've hit time. And of course, as we always do, we probably could have talked for another hour or two, and, uh, but it's been awesome. And the good yeah, news always. is you're going to be back next month at the end of next month. We got to figure out a topic for that. Have you had yeah. anything in mind that you want to cover? Um, well, one, I, I apparently need to get a hair. Um, or you take that hair you. and you put it up. <laughs> like, I want to see like the biggest rise in hair that you've ever had next time. Yeah, Let's do I that. Mean, I know I keep turning my head and you kind of see, but like we're, we're getting somewhere. Oh man. Holding it down, but. We're, Please, uh, <laughs> I want that straight up. We're gonna we're gonna try some Viking stuff around <laughs> here and see what what happens. The, the gravity is too strong. Like I have some very powerful products that you guys have witnessed, but I, they're not that powerful. <laughs> I want, man. Whenever you do decide to start cutting your hair, I want us to talk about a process so that you're you have a series of interesting hairstyles that you cut into until you that's get exactly to where you're trying to plan. get. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly my plan to yes. try some stuff out along. Um, oh, they're I saying know. I should give you a haircut on the stream. You do not want no. me cutting anyone's no. hair. That is I for would, sure. I would have to raise like <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars for me to consider that. Uh, challenge accepted. No, I'm just saying like, I would do it for like a, a solid charity effort, but that's a, that's an interesting thought. Have you, have you thought about donating that hair? Yeah, that's certainly been a thought too. If, if I decide to, to get rid of it, I would, I would try to be as responsible as That'd be interesting. Like a, um, I don't know if you ever watched the Impractical Jokers, but at one point, one of the guys grew his hair out for a very long time. It's actually about about the length of yours, and then they they took it and made a wig. And as a punishment, the other guy had to wear it for the rest of the year. So like, wow, <laughs> wow, that was amazing. So the rest of the season Pretty is him good. in this wig, and it's <laughs> continually breaking down and getting worse because you can't clean it right. Like it's. <laughs> I, I do think about that. Yeah, I guess you can't. Yeah, it's uh it's it was something to behold. <laughs> All right, man. Anything else uh you want to touch on before we go? Uh, this has um, been great. I think we've covered a lot of good yeah, stuff. No, it's been good. No, yeah, I, th I think this was this was a fine conversation on the subject. Um, you know, as usual, if people have questions or want to dive deeper or want to talk about other things or just want to talk to me about other things, um you know, my Twitter I can throw in the channel. My LinkedIn kind of has all my content or my uh, contact info as well. Cool. I'm in the Discord uh, as Fitzgerald, so you know, just 
you can hit me there. Um, yeah, plenty of opportunity, plenty of questions could come my way, feel free, and happy to respond accordingly. And again, you know, what Jameson and I just kind of discuss offline what we want to talk about once a month and also as other ideas come up. Like I remember last time two or three strong ones came out at the end. Yeah. So make sure we know because um, if we are relatively competent on the subject, we will certainly try. That's right. We'll at least make sure we don't sound like fools talking about it, right? Yeah, you know, I might Google it, whatever. <laughs> We're also pretty good bullshitters, so we might be able to just get through just about anything. That's but how you get designs across the finish line, that's, man. That's right. <laughs> but between our combined experience, we're what, at close to 30 years now? I think we can cover just about anything. So Yeah, yeah, I've broke 10 on paper now. So, you know what would be funny? We should, uh, we should f at some point, we should have people pick a topic we know almost nothing about and see how intelligently we could talk about it. Yeah, give us like one week to ramp up on it or something even. <laughs> That'd be interesting. I mean, I'd be down. Research is uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, you would say that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it's a necessary evil as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's. I think that just speaks to our background. It does. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm still paying student loans for my belief system on this one, so... <laughs> <clears throat> small unit tactics. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that would definitely be something I'd have to read up on. Same. <laughs> All right, man, I'm going to jump over and say my goodbyes. Thanks again. I appreciate you doing this. I look forward cool. to next month and, uh, I will chat with you soon. Thanks buddy. Yep. See you next month. All right, man. Later. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can join us live every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv forward slash Jameson Doral. Every Tuesday, I'll have a new podcast episode ready for you. Be sure to follow me on all of my social media using the links in the show notes and join the Dev Team Discord to be a part of the conversation anytime. We'll see you soon. <laughs>